This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. John Hendrickson's Life on Delay is a personal account of the author's experience as a person who stutters. John is a writer and senior editor at The Atlantic, where four years ago he began to write about stuttering, pinning an article about now President Joe Biden's relationship with his stutter. In many ways, Life on Delay is a follow-up of sorts to that article, a personal expansion exploring the author's own life. Hendrickson joins Asha Voices to discuss his book and for a conversation about publicly disclosing he's a person who stutters. His memoir is available now and on sale in paperback on January 9th. First, I want to introduce guest co-host Haya goldstein Chef. Haya, welcome back to Asha Voices. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be, be, be here. This is the third conversation of the podcast featuring authors writing about the experiences of people who stutter. You've joined me for all three conversations, and I so appreciate the perspective you bring to these conversations as an SLP working at the Siskin Stuttering Center and as a person who stutters yourself. It's been such an honor. Now to join the conversation with John Hendrickson. One of the central themes of Life on Delay is the idea of avoidance. Cleverly reflecting this theme, the word stutter doesn't appear in the early pages of the book, even though the reader is likely expecting it to. Early in our conversation, I noted this to John, and I added that avoidance has also been a way many people attempt to address stuttering, and I understood this was true for him at one point. That was perceptive of you to notice that. I also knew that I didn't want the word stutter in the title itself. I initially was going to call this book The Delay. And my literary agent told me Life on Delay is a better title. And she was instantly correct. And I came to love the fact that life is the first word of, of the title because I really see this as a book about life merely told through the prism of stuttering. But as you said, a major part of being a person who who stutters is avoidance. I certainly avoided claiming that identity until I wrote that article that you, you mentioned in the intro. I had lived my entire life as a person who stutters, but I never talked about it with friends or family, certainly never wrote about it for public consumption, never went to any kind of support group or conference or convention, anything. It was just this private burden that I lugged around. I think that that approach is common with a number of disorders and disabilities. But when it comes to talking in particular, 
The whole thing just becomes a little more layered. Why would you want to talk about how it's hard to talk? You uh, write in chapter 19 of your book, you called it The Locked Box. I didn't know how to speak fluently, but I knew how to cope. Could you tell us a little bit about that part of your life? All people who stutter develop coping mechanisms, workarounds, you know, perseverance, resiliency. Uh, But there is an interesting relationship between coping and avoidance. I think that both of those words are antithetical to the subtitle of my book, which is Making Peace with a Stutter. Coping implies that a thing has power over you and and you see its power and and you and you kind of give into its power and you're just like well I just have to cope with this reality making peace with something is just that i think making peace with something is confronting that reality and trying to live in a way where you can coexist with with something, but it doesn't have to have all this power over you. This, to me, would suggest that you might view today successful work with a speech-language pathologist as not something that emphasizes avoidance or reduction as the only path. And you clearly learned a lot about the work of SLPs while writing the book. I want to read a quote from Chapter 24. You speak with past ASHA Voices guest Courtney Bird from the University of Texas at Austin. She said, quote, this is from your book, if someone tells you these are the things we can do and your child will be fluent, of course you're going to do that. I mean, you'll do anything to protect your child. And let me say the teachers and the parents who don't talk about it and the speech language pathologists, they're trying to protect the child. It's not out of a place of harm, but I think of that group, the speech language pathologist has to have the courage to say there's another way, end quote. I wanted to ask, so having written this book, reflected on this, you said that you feel avoidance is antithetical to making peace with a stutter. What's your view of successfully working with a speech-language pathologist now if avoidance and reduction are not your markers of success? Great question. A couple months ago, I actually visited... Dr. Bird's grad student class at UT Austin. And a similar question came up. And it was the first time I reflected on this. And I'd I'd love to get both your perspectives on this. But the, the making peace approach to therapy, which I think is a big part of, of obviously Dr. Bird's model. It's, it's the opposite of fluency shaping the opposite of, of holding up fluency is the only goal. 
and it's it's the thing we were talking about a minute ago, learning to just live with this disorder as opposed to live against it. Most people who stutter in most parts of the country, they almost all try fluency shaping first. They almost, and their families, they their parents look for therapists who can fix this problem, who can get rid of this problem. And then as the kid keeps getting older, maybe they become a teenager or an adult, then it seems in most cases, not every case, but in most cases, the path of acceptance is kind of a last resort. What would it take to reorient that, to to make the path of acceptance the first option? And there, you know, as I said, there are certain certainly programs out there that are treating young kids to follow that path, to embrace that path of acceptance at a very young age. But those programs are in the minority, and they're certainly not available in many parts of the country. You know, you pretty much have to be in a place like like a major city. But just our our cultural understanding of this disorder and our our expectations, it's 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 confounding that what seems like the best mode of therapy, the best option, is often people's last resort. Do you agree with that, or do you disagree? Uh, John, I absolutely agree that's become the norm. And it's unfortunate because we know that stuttering is neurobiological in nature and it's a difference in how people speak. So to your point, if we could start off with acknowledging that difference that's neurobiological at the core and celebrate it and work with it, wow, I think we'd have such a different outcome. Yeah. I should mention too, Hi, you work at the Siskin Stuttering Center, and that is one of the centers that focuses on avoidance reduction, correct? Correct. Vivian Siskin was one of the founders with Joseph Sheehan of the Avoidance Reduction for Stuttering Therapy, which focuses heavily on reducing avoidances and escape behaviors that make stuttering into struggling and learning to reorganize life in a way that choices aren't made as a way to avoid showing stuttering, but actually working with it and embracing it and living a really successful life. Yeah. When you wrote the article in The Atlantic, that was a big moment for you. You read about this in the book because you're disclosing publicly you're a person who stutters. And a major scene in the book centers around your appearance on television discussing your article about Joe Biden. Tell us a bit about what was going through your mind on that day, be, being uh, in a public media appearance, speaking about stuttering? My article was published on a Thursday morning, about a week before Thanksgiving 2019. 
And I thought, all right, it's like any other article I've ever written. That's that it gets published and then you move on to the next assignment. And I was completely wrong about that in every sense of the word. And so it immediately went viral and, and it was immediately being read and shared by people all over the world. And within hours, um, I was getting requests to go talk about it on TV or on NPR and elsewhere. And I had never done anything like that. I never even thought it was possible. I never, I never conceived of doing it. And so my inclination, it was just to immediately say, no, I can't do that. But I, I talked about it with a few other people at the Atlantic and I, I saw their advice and what it came down to ultimately is that the conceit of my article about Biden, it was called what Joe Biden can't bring himself to say. And it was about how he can talk about his own stutter as a childhood problem, but he's reticent to frame it as a, as a, contemporary problem as an adult man. And so if I'm going to call that truth out, and I'm going to just challenge that narrative and essentially challenge Biden to openly talk about it, it would be so hypocritical of me to then hide. It would be hypocritical of me to say, no, I can't do this because I'm, because I'm embarrassed or ashamed or anything. And the truth is I was terrified, embarrassed, and, you know, wrestling with those feelings of being ashamed at that point in my life, the way I talked. And it was, it was hard, but I, it just came down to that. It came down to, I can't be a hypocrite. And so I accepted the invitation to go on and went on MSNBC on that next morning. And, you know, as I said, it was absolutely terrifying, but it, it changed my life. And it, it was literally something I didn't think was possible. And I did it and it reoriented my sense of possibility. And then it also led to more communication and letters and emails and messages from other people who stutter as well. And that really kind of, began pushing this big snowball downhill and that ultimately led me to write this book.
I want to ask you more about the response you received to the book in just a sec. Before we move on, this is a question that's been on my mind recently. When I edit interviews, I work in with podcasts, I work with audio. When I edit interviews, I often do something we call, you know, tightening them. I cut moments of us, you knows, sometimes spaces when someone's thinking. And unless a guest identifies as a person who stutters, I would often cut instances that sound like stuttering. If someone identifies as a person who stutters, I don't cut that. You talked about expectations around people who stutter. And I've been wondering recently if I'm sort of creating unrealistic communication expectations through the way that I edit these episodes and other pieces of audio. You're a person who speaks to the media, a person who stutters, and a journalist. What are your thoughts? I admire your self-reflection there, and I think that's a great question. I'm of two minds about this. On one hand, it could be interpreted exactly as you said as perpetuating certain fluency, fluency expectations, fluency stereotypes, regardless of whether your guest is a person who stutters or not, but just upholding this primacy of fluency. But on the other hand, any piece of media, any piece of work, be it a piece of writing or a movie or a piece of audio, goes through editing and it does get whittled down. You know, you you can't have a five-hour unedited podcast. That would be very boring. <laughs> so just as a person who works in media and who's a writer and an editor myself, I understand the value of editing and I understand the meaning and intention of putting the listener first. I don't think that that means it's, it's best to paper over every, every block, every pause, every repetition. But I think creating a faithful interpretation of the way a person talks while also trying to keep your audience's needs in mind is perfectly fine. John, we have known each other since 2019, and I believe it was that same year that I got to see you at the Friends Convention in Denver, Colorado. And Friends is the National Association of Young People Who Stutter, um, founded by the wonderful Lee Ket 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 Agiano, who recently passed. Um, And I know that it was there that you built a a new level of 
of, of a bond, I would say, with um, people who stutter. And to quote you in your book in chapter 27, you said, I told myself I was going to friends as an observer, but very soon thereafter, you found yourself walking across the bridge, talking, sharing, and what it seems like really opening your heart to a new experience with stuttering. Can you speak to the power of community and how it's influenced you in your stuttering experience? That was also a life-changing experience going to that convention and especially the final day of it in, in which all sorts of people who stuttered walked up to the microphone and shared experiences. And as those people kept going up, I didn't think I would be among them because as Haya read, I told myself I was only there as a journalist, as a reporter, as an observer, and that I was just getting material for my book. And I felt compelled to participate. I, at the time, I think I was 32 and I had only just recently began going to some chapter meetings of the National Stuttering Association and had only just the prior week attended the NSA conference. But those two things were the first time I ever got any sense of community or ever let myself even be part of any community. I had never even Googled stuttering support group. I had never Googled conferences for people who stutter, conventions for people who stutter. It didn't dawn on me. It never crossed my mind that those even existed or that they were even a, a type of thing I would ever attend. Friends in particular was and is life-changing. And it's it gets back to the late founder, Lee Caggiano, and just Lee's mode of being, which is telegraphing acceptance, but telegraphing this powerful neutrality. Lee, as anyone who knew her, wouldn't baby you and you know wouldn't patronize you lee had a great sense of humor and she could you know she could make biting jokes and, and was like a, a great tough cookie all of that when it pertains to people who people who stutter meant that lee who was a fluent person treated people who stutter like 
any other person. She, she, she didn't cut them a break. She didn't cut them any slack. She treated them like any other person. And that then was built into the DNA of friends where the people who go, parents, SLPs, people who stutter, everyone pretty much has their guard down. It's a very powerful, powerful community. And to be among that for days at a time, to watch other people with their guard down, and then the way that encourages you to put your guard down, it was powerful. And I I think of these last several years of my life and me letting myself let my guard down in that environment really was a pivotal moment of change. John Hendrickson, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure talking with both of you. After the conversation with John ended, Haya shared some resources with me. She says she wanted to offer SLPs doorways that lead toward learning more about stuttering. The first thing that comes to mind is the Stuttering Foundation of America has fantastic virtual learning programs, usually monthly, led by Sarah McIntyre, who is a excellent speech language pathologist and person who stutters herself. Those are about one hour, so you can go to stutteringhelp.org and find that learning. As well, there are streaming video libraries, and there's also a wonderful podcast where Sarah interviews uh, speech therapists, people who stutter to really learn and dig into the lived experience of stuttering. Um, Another opportunity for learning would be listening to podcasts of people who stutter. And so two of them that come to mind are Stutter Talk, which is one of the first podcasts on stuttering and talks a lot about the lived experience. You act as host there uh, occasionally as well. Yes, occasionally I am a, a host. That 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 is correct, and also the Proud Stutter podcast, Stuttering is Cool podcast. Once you start getting into that world, you you can learn so much. And finally, I'd say is showing up. So showing up to conferences and conventions like we mentioned er, 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 earlier in the podcast, Friends, the National Association for Young People Who Stutter, they have yearly conventions in the summer. This year, it'll be in Colorado. And there's a track for speech language pathologists who want to learn about stuttering. And the same thing holds true for the National Stuttering Association that also has opportunities for speech therapists to learn and grow. So those are some starting points. And I always encourage people to show up because once you start showing up in the right places, you learn and grow so much. One more thing coming to mind, there is a wonderful website. Um, It's a wonderful YouTube channel called Open Stutter, which helps you understand the avoidance reduction for stuttering therapy approach. And I know that was mentioned in our talk as well. Wonderful. Haya, thank you so much. If you want to hear conversations with Haya on Stutter Talk, you can look the podcast up and we'll put a link to it on the blog post for this episode, along with Asher resources related to stuttering. And you can find links to the two previous episodes that we produced with other authors writing about stuttering. Once again, Haya, thank you for joining us. You're so welcome. Thank you, Judy.
Find links to learn more about stuttering on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org slash podcast. We'll include a link to the Fluency Disorders portal on the ASHA website and a link to ASHA's special interest group four covering fluency and fluency disorders. Also, we'll include links to past episodes where you can hear guests discuss the work of SLPs focusing on content rather than fluency. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. I'm J.D. Gray. This is ASHA Voices.